Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Astros Baseball, a podcast by a fan. For the fans of the Houston Astros, here is your host, Rob Fontenot. Hey guys, welcome to this episode of Astros Baseball. My guest today is teacher, author, historian, Phil S. Dixon. Mr. Dixon, welcome to uh, the show. Well, good morning. Good morning. How are you today? I'm doing well, staying safe uh, during the pandemic, and uh, hoping one of these days to get back out on tour. Who knows how that will work out? Yeah, you had a tour going that got canceled because of this, right? Yeah, yeah. I well, I kind of uh, stay on tour. So. Oh, okay. Did, uh, yeah, going back to 2013, that you know, I've been traveling for 40 years, but. 2013 to 2018, I did a 200 city tour uh, promoting uh, uh, racial reconciliation through baseball in the Negro Leagues. Wow! So let's let's go back to your childhood. Were were you uh, born and raised in Kansas City? Yeah, born and raised in Kansas City, Kansas. Uh, um, I was uh, raised uh, actually uh, during the era of segregation. And uh, I attended all black elementary schools, all black middle schools. Matter of fact, I didn't have a white teacher until I was in the eighth grade. And uh, in that neighborhood, we played baseball. And a number of the uh, uh, Kansas City Monarchs lived not too far from where I lived. Oh, really? And one of them, yeah, Eddie Dwight lived across the alley uh, from me. And he had played for the Monarchs uh, and played with the Indianapolis uh, ABCs going back to 1924. I think he retired about 1936, but he was in a neighborhood. Uh, we had professional boxers. We had everything related to sports and uh, some, you know, we had a little bit of everything, really, uh, from academia to sports. Okay, I was going to ask you about when you first heard about the Negro Leagues, but I guess if you kind of were in the same neighborhood as them, you, you've probably known about them about your whole life, huh? Yeah, yeah I would hear people talking about the Negro Leagues. Of course, you know, I came up as a, uh, pretty much with Major League. I collected baseball cards and that kind of thing. And uh, so uh, when I would hear them talk about the Negro Leagues, I didn't really understand, you know, exact history because for, for me, uh, black people in baseball really began with Jackie Robinson because that's what we were being taught at that time. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't know anything about the Kansas City Monarchs, but I heard the name and my parents would tell me that so-and-so paid for the Kansas City Monarchs. And uh, when I started playing baseball, I started to hear more and more of these stories. Um, and uh, yeah, I started playing in the third grade, so you can imagine, you're correct, I've been hearing them all my life. And that was kind of the introduction to it. But, you know, I was, like I said, a major league kid. So, yeah. um, you know, I, I was collecting the baseball cards. And, and even though there were players who came out 
haven't been Negro Leagues that were in those coins since, like Ernie Banks or even Ike Brown. I don't know if you remember Ike Brown used to be with Detroit. He had played for the Kansas City Monarchs. Uh, there were a number of players who came from the Negro Leagues, but rarely were you able to make that connection. Were you able to go to any Monarch games as a kid? Uh, no, not quite that old. No? <laughs> Not quite that old. Oh, that this was. So you just yeah. heard about them? Yeah, I heard about. Them. Oh, I, I thought you had said that they were they played for them at the time while they were living in your neighborhood. But they okay, okay. now I got it. Yeah, no, the, the players who had played for the Monarchs were retired. As a matter of fact, there was a, a pastor who lived across the street from me, and he used to listen to. Uh, two baseball games at one time. So you have two radios going, mm. one for the Cardinals, one for the Royals, Kansas City Royals, where they were just getting started. And uh, he would listen to those baseball games, but he was the uh, person who pretty much educated me on a lot of uh, things related to the Nicola Leach because he was going to those games in the 1930s. So, yeah, there was a lot of education going on and, and it didn't feel like education because people were just telling stories. Yeah. So if you go back to your childhood, you left home at 17 to pursue a music career. So you really didn't start out as a youngster wanting to be this uh, Negro League uh, person that you are now, right? Right. Well, actually, you know, like a lot of the young people at that time, you know, uh, you were able to do many things. So... Uh, not only did I play trumpet, at, you know, in a high school band and that kind of thing, uh, but I also played baseball, played football on the high school team, uh, wrestled for a while. And so I just, you know, was able to, you know, really pretty much do a lot of things. And I think that was kind of more typical of students. But, yeah, but later on, uh, I decided I was going to pursue the music. And uh, so 19, I guess this would be 1977. Mm-hmm. Hit the road with a funk man and traveled on the Chitlin circuit all through the South and, and I ran into a lot of prejudice and racism that I didn't know still existed. Oh, you're, were you kind of sheltered from that, from where, you're, uh, where your neighborhood was? Yeah, and that, that's absolutely correct. Uh, and our neighborhood, just because it was, uh, it was, it was an all-black neighborhood. And uh, so uh, growing up, especially early on, I didn't know that this existed because it didn't exist in our neighborhood because, you know, we weren't privy to it. Now, I did go to an integrated high school, mm-hmm. and uh, but still it wasn't like what I saw when I got down south. As a matter of fact, I remember going down in Biloxi, Mississippi, uh, maybe in 1978, and talking to young people who were close to my age. And they were in high school, and they began to tell me about they were going to the prom, but they had a separate prom for white students and a separate prom for black students. And that was unheard of in Kansas City. So, uh, yeah, I, I learned a lot by actually going on the road uh, with the band. What year did you graduate high school? 1974. 74. Okay, so you're about you're about 15 years older than me then. Right. And, and you know, our high school was, uh, it was uh, actually uh, uh, produced some pretty good athletes. Uh, uh, Lucia Dallas came out of my high school. Uh, you probably heard of uh, Larry Drew. He was uh, coaching with the Cavaliers mm-hmm. most recently. Yeah. And they all came He was a couple of grades behind me, but they had a great uh, tradition. Skip Thomas, who 
Dr. Depp who played for the uh, the Oakland Raiders. They were all in my high school, uh, including baseball player uh, Steve Rinko. Steve Rinko pitched for the Montreal Expos. So it was, good, it was a good place. It was a good place huh. to come from. So you ended up going back to Kansas City and getting a bachelor's degree at the University of Missouri in Kansas City. What made you decide to stop that uh, music career and go to school? Well, let's see. Uh, well, actually, I never stopped. Matter of fact, I practiced my trumpet yesterday. Uh, <laughs> I never stopped. I never stopped. Uh, but, you know, your interests change. Your interests change. Right. And so when I came back, uh, I did play, you know, once again, still playing in college band. Uh, I didn't play at the University of Missouri, though. But uh, uh, I always kept my trumpet. I always kept my interest in music and uh, my interest in sports. And over the years, I've been able to marry those two because uh, even when you talk about the Negro Leagues, uh, it's hard to leave out the whole uh, entertainment uh, feel because they kind of interacted. They stayed at the same hotels. They traveled the same territories. And uh, so it's, it's, it's hard to not, uh, not connect the two when you're telling the story of the Negro Leagues. So it said that uh, I checked out your uh, website um, it said you got a job freelance writing and that led to uh, you getting a press pass. So eventually that led to you getting a job at the Kansas City Royals. Yes. Yeah. Most people around Kansas City knew I had this interest in baseball. And there was a lady, Miss Blueford, who was at the Kansas City Hall. And I went down and I told Miss Blueford I'd like to write some storage for her. And I offered to do it for free with one, with one, with one, uh, I guess say, uh, benefit, which was to give me a make league press pass so I could go to the ball game. Right. So uh, I ended up going to the ball game to write numerous articles for the Kansas City Call, which was an all-black newspaper. And that actually was the, some of the first public writing that I had done. And uh, then from there, uh, I started working and going to games so often that uh, the Kansas City Royals uh, ended up offering me a job when when the, uh, after the Al Campanis deal came, and they talked about no uh, African Americans in the front office. Mm-hmm. So since I was I was there, I knew baseball and uh, got along very good with with uh, management as well as the players. Yeah, I ended up working for the uh, Kansas City Royals for two years as assistant director of public relations. So uh, once again, uh, a great a learning period for me. So why did you decide to leave that just to keep pursuing other things? Well, actually, uh, uh, the position on the field paid pay, pay great money. Uh, but in the front office, you know, uh, they can keep your salary down because uh, there were, you know, thousands of people who would love to have your job. <laughs> yeah. So we, we weren't making that much money. Uh, but. And, you know, it was a great opportunity to interact with players, coaches. And I did just that when um, one of my good friends that I used to talk to all the time, learned a lot from me, was a Hank Bauer. Hank Bauer uh, used to sit next to Hank and, uh, and uh, talk baseball. And uh, so any of the traveling people would come through, Phil Zudo used to come through the Yankees. I would go and talk to those guys. So it put me in a really good place. Plus, I had access to the uh, clubhouse, 
So I would go down and talk to players. I used to go down and talk to Airline Hendricks and Frank Robinson, uh, Wayne Terwilliger I used to talk to quite a bit, uh, Sparky Anderson, and just numerous players. Uh, and so uh, all of this is just one of those, you know, is a kid growing up loving baseball to be able to interact with those guys was just great. Of course, the Royals at that time had Bo Jackson and George Brett and Willie Wilson and Frank White and a whole bunch of other people who were traded to the team that didn't stay long. So it was just a great, it was just a great period. So this was in the late 80s? Yeah, late 80s. I left the Royals in 1990. Oh, 1990? Oh, okay. So where'd you go after you left that job? Actually, uh, where did I go after that? Well, I began working in Kansas City for, I believe it or not, an employment agency, getting uh, uh, people uh, who were underserved in the community uh, uh, jobs. And at the same time, I was finishing my uh, my first and second book. Uh, the first one was called the uh, Kansas City Baseball Trivia Quiz book that came out in 1992. And of course, the Eagle Baseball League's a photographic history that I actually finished in the 80s when I was with the Royals. Mm-hmm. But the publisher held, held it for four years. And it didn't come out until four years later in 1992. So uh, I was kind of in transition at that point. But uh, once the Negro Baseball League's a photographic history, and the other book came out, two books in 1992, uh, the photographic history winning the best baseball book of the year. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, I began then to uh, get more national recognition for the things I had been doing locally for years. How did you find out that you won that award? I mean, did they have an award ceremony or does someone just say, hey, you know, you won the award for the best baseball book in 1992? Yeah, uh, they did have an award ceremony event that I did go to. I think, I, I, don't, I can't remember how I knew, uh, how I got the information that I won the award, but yeah, I did eventually go up to uh, outside of Cincinnati sponsored by Spitball Magazine, and I eventually went up there and uh, and uh, accepted the award, and it's hanging on my wall right now. I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> so this, uh, that book is just full of pictures? Yeah, well, actually, it's it's probably, uh, it has pictures, but I wrote these really leading captions, and they were very informative. And so the text, and you can read the text, and you can read the captions without reading the text and still learn the story. So mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it had a lot. The internet put over 600 photographs in one book, and that had never happened before. It hasn't happened since. So uh, that was uh, the Negro Baseball League's a Photographic History. Where did, and, um, where did you get all these pictures at? Well, I began going from home to home, uh, interviewing ball players. Uh, I would take a little road trips. Uh, through the South, and I'd go down to Birmingham and uh, actually uh, visited people like uh, Buck Leonard at his home in Rocky Mount. Uh, I went through St. Louis, uh, knew a lot of guys in St. Louis. Of course, Papa Bell was still alive there. Most people have heard that name. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, I would just travel around. And so one ball player would tell me about another ball player. Of course, at that time, uh, they had all the technology we have today. I didn't have a scanner, so they had to trust me with their pictures. Uh, I would come back to Kansas City, make copies, return the pictures, that kind of thing. But uh, so that's where you got the pictures. Ten years. That's where you got the pictures they gave them to you. 
Oh, okay. Oh, okay. And, yeah, it took about 10 years to uh, make that happen. But uh, uh, when, it, when it came out, it basically revolutionized the way that people looked at the Negro Leagues. Uh, there were several great innovations right inside that book. So you left the uh, Royals in 1990, but that's also the same year that you co-founded the Negro League Baseball Museum there in Kansas City? That is correct again. That is correct again. So, yeah, uh, matter of fact, probably uh, just a few months. Actually, believe it or not, uh, several things happened in that period. Of course, the founding of the Negro League Museum, I was one of five people. Actually, the youngest one, the oldest one, I think most people uh, know that he had a lot to do with the uh, museum, which was John Book O'Neill. But uh, if you look at the incorporation papers, Right under O'Neill's name, you will see the name Phil S. Dixon. And uh, I was the youngest. So, and in addition to that same year, 1990, um, I authenticated for the James Coupapa Bell trial where someone had stolen his merchandise and I ended up in federal court in St. Louis. So, yeah, that was in 1990 as well. So, um, there was a lot going on in 1990. Yeah, sounds like it. Uh, so I also saw on your website that you interviewed over 500 players and their wives, their offspring, and you won a Sabre McMillan Award for Excellence in Historical Research. Right, right. Well, if you read it in my books, uh, right up to the latest book that I had, which is the Dizzy and Daffy Dean Barnstorming Tour, Barnstorming Tour, Race, Media, America's National Pastime, mm-hmm. you'll find that uh, I did relentlessly to bring that information and uh, to tell the story in a way that people can understand what's going on and um, why it's an important story to uh, for, for for Americans to know and uh, and 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 uh, I've done that all the way through. So uh, you know, uh, and then also some of the things I like people like to challenge sometimes, but you know. Uh, Having won a research awards uh, <laughs> helps you <laughs> helps you to say, hey, this guy he's pretty good. He knows he knows how to research, and uh, and I do get lots of phone calls. People asking me questions about how to research certain things. Yeah. So let me see. Um, the member of Sabre, the Missouri's Writer Guild, Internet Baseball Writers Association. And you're still on the National Advisory Board for the Negro League Baseball Museum. Yeah, and I've uh, been consistently in some capacity with the museum for for its whole existence. And, um, you know, I I just try to stay involved with a baseball sport I really enjoy. Mm -hmm. I love telling my history. And there's so much history that is, uh, how can I put it, It's, it's skewed in baseball. Yeah, and and so uh, with baseball, you're constantly trying to tell the true story because there's a lot of stories out there in baseball, uh, as well as American society, society in general, that really um, aren't true. I'll just put it that way. And, I, and probably the best way I try to explain this is uh, a kind of cultural conditioning is not history, and in many ways we've been culturally conditioned to believe certain things that aren't true. 
So you spoke earlier about your your uh, 200 American city tour and you went up into Canada. Um, it said you went to 17 different states and you logged 75,000 miles. This was all driving? All driving. I wanted to make it as authentic as I could. And I wanted to see America the way that in legal weeks uh, we traveled extensively by bus uh, saw America. So in that particular uh, tour, I drove everywhere. And uh, of course, uh, I didn't have the luxury of, uh, you know, having a driver. <laughs> so when my wife lived with me sometimes. But yeah. for the most part, I just drove it and uh, it went to all parts of the country. And then uh, I was in certain places. I was taking other, uh, I can say the other tourist-type destinations. Like, for instance, I was up in... Uh, I'm going to say maybe it was Creston, Iowa, Creston, mm-hmm. Iowa, and I, I stopped there by Johnny Carson's boyhood home, or, and then I was in North Cat, Nebraska, I stopped out by, um, uh, Bill Hickok's home, uh, up in there, uh, Buffalo Bills, excuse me, Buffalo Bills. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and then down in Tupelo, Mississippi, I stopped by Elvis's birthplace, and, you know, I would just stop and, uh, and then, and then outside of St. Louis, uh, I was coming back from Peoria, stopped by the Cahokia Mounds there. And, you know, you just, I just really wanted to take in America. And uh, and uh, along the way, I've met so many wonderful baseball fans and communities and small towns all over America. And it, it, was just, it was just something that, you know, you do it once. It was so much work, you know, you couldn't do it twice. Yeah. But I had such a joy meeting all these people. And a lot of the people still follow me on social media. And uh, so I'm still in contact with quite a few of them. Yeah, you say uh, you just want to do it once. There's this uh, guy from Britain that came over to the United States, and he was going to try to go to all 162 uh, or all 30 stadiums. Or to see, I think he wanted to see 162 games or something. But uh, when they talked to him, he he said he he would never do it again. He said he glad he he glad he he glad he did it, but he did he wouldn't want to do it again. <laughs> well, so some things in life, yeah, I, I think Louis Armstrong said it best. He said it's better to be a once was than a never was. So it's ready to it's better to take that trip one time than never take it. Yeah, I think there's, I think a lot of people probably have that same story, you know, like that was pretty, you know, that was pretty rough, but I learned a lot of stuff, but I mean, I really wouldn't want to do it again, you know? Right, right. And, you know, and, and, and part of the reason why it was, it was uh, so labor intensive because, well, some days I would get up on Saturday morning, right? And so I'm heading out from my house at five o'clock in, in the morning and I'm driving maybe. 200 miles away, right? Mm-hmm. And then I would I would do a 10:30 speaking engagement, and then I would I would speak there, sign books, give my presentation. Then I would leave that city and go to another city, and uh, then I would present in the other city. You know, maybe two o'clock, and so I might drive you know an hour to get to the other city. I would present there, and then I would come on back home, and uh, and so I did that. I had probably had many days where I did two cities in one day. And it was kind of like uh, the Negro Leaguers. They sometimes would play two games in two different cities. Yeah. Uh, my dream, 
My dream was to do three cities in one day. I never got a chance to do that, but who knows? Hey, I made you know, this. There's always tomorrow, right? So yeah, but I I never did three cities in one day, but many so, times I did two two cities. Yeah. So you're doing all of this on the weekends? Oh no, no, no! I was um, when I, I when I left Kansas City going to Canada. I spoke twelve days in a row. Oh. So I think maybe I might have left on like on a Monday, and I went into Council Bluffs, Iowa, and then from there I'll go on and up through Sioux Falls, and then up through North Dakota, Jamestown, Bismarck, Minot, then jumped over into Estevan in Canada, ended up in Saskatoon and uh, Regina. So you know when you talk to me and, and I talk to truck drivers often and. Uh, they're amazed how I know the same territory they're driving, but yeah, I drove it too. So. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. So uh, oh no, no, I I was gone most weekends. Generally, I would be gone maybe three weekends out of the month for a period of about five years, and uh, making this happen. And uh, uh, yeah, it was it was a lot of work, but once again, it was quite rewarding. And uh, when I came out of that tour, the first book I wrote was a book about barnstorming. And that was the one with the busy backing barnstorming tour. And I was able to bring a, a, a different understanding to the whole barnstorming experience mm-hmm. through, uh, when I wrote that book. But I wouldn't have had that type of uh, vision had I not taken that tour. So you're, na- you're now known as a barnstormer. <laughs> that could be. So could be. I'm sure. I'm sure some young kid sitting there saying, "I'm going to top that," but I wish them well. Why is the book called Dizzy and Daffy Dean? Well, whenever I would go out to present, I would always end with a story of Dizzy and Daffy, Daffy Dean, and also Satchel Page. Uh, and if anyone's ever heard one of my my talks, you know. Um, it's not a boring talk. Lots of stories, and and people had heard about Dizzy and Daffy Dean. Some knew about them well. So anyway, I would tell stories related to Dizzy Dean, and and I noticed that people really liked these Dizzy Dean stories, uh, as how Dizzy Dean interacted with the Negro leagues, mm-hmm. Negro leaguers, and stuff like that. So so you know, it was kind of a logical thing to go ahead and tell the story that had never been told. And so I, I started to peek into books and many people had touched on the subject, but they hadn't quite captured it the way that I was about to capture it. So uh, I began to tell the story about Dizzy and his interaction after the 1934 World Series where he and his brother had won 50 some odd games for the St. Louis Cardinals for the World Series. And then instead of just going home, they went on this 14-game, uh, 14-city tour against uh, four great Negro League teams. So I, I married the knowledge I had from the Negro Leagues with the knowledge I had from the Major Leagues, which people hadn't really heard my Major League knowledge much. And uh, I was able to tell a great story in the books done very well. You also have a copyright to some poems, so you're also a poet. Yeah, uh, one of the things that I do, uh, whenever I present, especially during my tour, I always end it with poetry. And um, uh, that was quite popular. So, uh, you know, I started writing 
So your website is NLB Alive, and that's where they can see all of this information that I found about you. So I have a few more things to ask you, but I'm going to take a quick break, and then we'll get started on some more things that I need to find out about you. We'll be right back, folks. You're listening to Astros Baseball. All right, folks, we are back with Mr. Phil S. Dixon. Uh, Now I want to ask you about your movie script. It says you have a movie script here. What are we going to see if you get this movie going? Well, I tell you what, I'm still finishing it. Um, um, I finished my second draft, and of course I showed it to someone out in Los Angeles, and uh, so they made some some uh, good suggestions. So I'm going back in and working on that. <laughs> At the same time, I'm working on a few other things. Um, so. Uh, uh, but yeah, you know, there's never been a great movie done on the Negro Baseball League. There's been some efforts, such as the Bingo Wall, and uh, of course there was a Soul of the Game. There's been a few things done on Satchel Page, but nothing ever caught the essence of the Negro League and brought the pride of the game. So I'm hoping to uh, be able to tell that story in, in a script form. And uh, basically using all these things that I've accumulated as my experience over these many years and trying to translate it into uh, a written work. Uh, I might also mention in 1994-93, I had a contract with Columbia Pictures to be an authenticator for a script that they were trying to produce. And a guy by the name of uh, Carter, uh, who uh, he wrote the movie Coach Carter, Mm-hmm. And uh, so Thomas Carter was his name. He was an actor in a TV show in the seventies called uh, The White Shadow. They, they were basketball players. Yeah. So anyway, uh, he wrote the movie Coach Carter, and he was the uh, kind of producer. He was involved with the script, and so anyway, we met a few times. I went out to Los Angeles, and uh, but in the end, Columbia scrapped the movie, and and probably a good thing. I didn't think it was a great script, but. Uh, but I was an authenticator on that project. So that gave me some good experience, and I hope to parlay that experience into uh, maybe getting my own script done. And I don't know, there are lots of people out there trying to do that, but I think I've got something pretty neat. Yeah, well, it sounds like you would know a lot about it, and you would probably have the most authentic uh, movie for people to watch. So one thing I wanted to ask you, I wrote a note Mm -hmm. earlier when you said you collected baseball cards, I want to know how many you had, how long you did it, and do you still have them? Well, I don't have all of them, but I started, uh, that was one of my first loves, uh, was collecting baseball cards. I started back in the 19, I think the first cards I collected were the 65 series. But I ended up later on having cards from the 50s, and as a matter of fact, I have a 55, 56 
And uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, those came from kids that were in the neighborhood. Uh, I used to always joke and tell people, when they found out about girls, I got their cards. Yeah. And uh, so, so I was able to put these sets together. And uh, so I had a pretty good collection. reached up to 100,000 cards. And, matter of fact, the first article ever written on me was written about me collecting baseball cards, not anything else, but baseball wow. cards. How many, bo- how many boxes does it take to hold 100,000 baseball cards? That's a good question. I'm going to hide. And you know what? Uh, and, and you know, the, the interesting thing is, you couldn't buy complete sets when I was buying these. I remember complete sets, you know, maybe around 69, 70, 71. But for the most part, you know, it was buying packs. Yeah. And then opening up five cards at a time, or, you know, you could trade somebody, or, you know, somebody give you, you know, three, four hundred cards. And it was that kind of way, of just over the years, you just ended up picking up so many. And uh, so, yeah, I had quite a few. And uh, reading the backs of those baseball cards was uh, one of the ways that uh, I began uh, to understand baseball history yeah. and understand who was, who was playing. And that's why a lot of times I would go out and speak, and somebody will come and they'll mention a major league player. I think they think they're going to sneak somebody by me. And they don't realize, you know, you sit with these cards, you know, most of your childhood. <laughs> it's hard to slip a player by. You get one by me yeah. so often, but back from players who were playing in the, in the uh, especially in the 1960s, it's hard to slip too many players by me. Um, a quick story, I was in, um, I was in uh, Arkansas, Fayetteville, Arkansas, when I was presenting there. And after I finished my talk, a guy came and said, hey, I had an uncle who played for the Chicago White Sox. And I said, what's his name? He said, Sherm Lawler. And Sherm Lawler was the guy who seemed like you would just get 15 Sherm Lawlers to any other player that you really wanted, right? Yeah. And you had so many Sherm Lawler cards, you couldn't forget Sherm <laughs> So, so. I knew exactly who Sheriff Lawler was because I never wanted any more of his cars because I had to be. Yeah. Uh, but, um, yeah, and, you know, just just a name, a blast from the past. And uh, he was king of Sheriff Lawler. He did present me with a very nice picture of Sherm as a bad boy for the local city team. So these cards you had as a kid, did you take care of them? Uh, absolutely. Now, there was one period, and I think this was about 1968, and so many of my 68s and 67s got destroyed because I was uh, listening to the baseball game on the radio often. And uh, so I lay in my bed and I wanted to see the players as they came up to bat. So I got this great idea to put them on the wall, like wallpaper. So mm-hmm. all by side by side with some helmets glued and I taped them to the wall. <laughs> and then uh, one night, uh, and it was beautiful. One of my nephews came by and said, man, this is the most incredible thing I've ever seen in my life. They were like, stepped to the wall all perfectly like wallpaper. And uh, one night, somebody was talking about something on the baseball game. And I said, I wonder if that's true. Of course, it, you can't tell because you can't see the back of the car because it's stuck on the wall. Yeah. At that, at that point, I started trying to pull some of them off. And of course, we glued things never go on. They had to come off like they went on, right? Yeah. One thing I remember about the cards when I was a kid, 
is that, well, one thing about my cards is we wrote our names on the back and we played with them and we didn't take care of them at all. But one thing I remember is on the back, they usually had like a little story about the guy on the card. So you would learn little things about him. Sure. Sure. And in fact, uh, uh, different years would have different type of formats on the back. Like some, some years they would try to put their entire minor league career and then other ones they would just put last year or something like that. And you wouldn't see their, you know, you wouldn't see what they did in other years. So, yeah, uh, the backs of baseball cards are very important. And a lot of people don't know this about me, but in 1987, I was the first African-American to ever produce their own set of baseball cards. And uh, they were called Dixon's uh, Negro League Greats in, uh, in uh, 1987. And that led me to, uh, in 1994, I think it was 94, I wrote the copy and produced a picture for the Ted Williams Negro League set. So, yeah, a lot of people, you know, don't know that. But, yeah, those those are two things that I did in the baseball card world. So were there baseball cards for the Negro Leagues? There had been a guy named Rockwell who who did a, like, a drawing prior to that. Mm -hmm. Um, But for the most part, and I think there was an Indianapolis clown set. There's somebody that put out a slip for James Cooper the bail about 10 cards, but uh, no one had done what I did at that particular time, which is uh, all pictures, 45 card set, and, uh, with, you know, kind of written in the tradition of the old tops and tops and baseball cards that I grew up with. And, uh, I, like I said, I produced that and uh, released it, and, and it still holds its value today. Matter of fact, I just sold it Okay, now I'd like to see if you could share with us, like give us a history, talk us through the beginnings of the Negro Leagues, and just whatever you want to share about it. Oh, man, there's so much I can share. Um, I know you probably don't have enough time to share everything, but just, you know, kind of kind of give us some good stories about it. You know, uh, my thing that makes the Negro Leagues great is the stories, because I, th- I think, you know, if you start talking about adding statistics and things like that, and there are people who try to do that, but the stories are the thing that reaches. So most people, most people in our American society, if you, if you tell them a person about 300, they don't even know if that's bad or good. Yeah. So if you can, you can tell a great story, then uh, people seem to uh, like those stories. And I, I know from me, I have stories uh, of my own that I've probably never shared, but I can probably share a few with you. Uh, one of the ones, uh, I used to get to James Coupon to Bay Home. So I would uh, get in my car and I would drive up to St. Louis, which is about 250 miles from the year uh, where I live. And I would drive up there and sit with James Coupon to Bay on, on Saturday and he would just tell me stories. I remember once he told me a story about a guy who stole second base twice in one week that only came to bat once. I said, boy, I said, how could 
caught everybody off guard. So coach said, what are you doing back here? He said, wasn't a foul ball? I said, no. The guy standing on the first base, he said, okay, don't worry, I'll steal the base again. <laughs> so he went down and stole the base. Now, now that sounded like a really strange story when he told me that, right? Mm-hmm. But there is, there is a clip, and I can get the player's name on the Toronto Blue Jays. You could probably look it up on YouTube or something, mm-hmm. where he, he did just that. He did. He, a modern-day player did what Kupaka Bill had told me, you know, uh, happened when he was playing. So, yeah, it, 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 it definitely can happen. Uh, Hank Bauer. Uh, Hank Bauer, when I first started collecting baseball cards in the 60s, of course, he was the manager of the Orioles, and he had that great team that beat the Dodgers in 66. And uh, Hank would tell me stories. And uh, Hank uh, used to tell me a story about Elston Howard. And uh, Hank said that Monday, uh, Casey Stengel called a meeting. And uh, so everybody's in the meeting. The Yankees have one black player, it's Elston Howard. And Casey Stengel says in the meeting, he said, it took the Yankees all these years to get a black player, and we had to get the slowest black player that ever lived. <laughs> and, and so, so, you know, and, and Hank told me the story. I said, was he slow? He said, what? He's slow. And so I never thought about looking at Elsa Howard's stolen bases. And, you know, at that particular time, you know, you talk about, you know, so many great players, Billy Blue who came in, or Sam Jeffro, Jackie Robinson, those kind of guys, they all could run. They were leading the league and stolen bases and those kind of things. So I looked at Elsa Howard's record when I got home that night. You know, we had lowered encyclopedia. It was, you know, it was, it was so big, it could hold the door open. It was, it was thick. So anyway, I, I went through the encyclopedia, and sure enough, Elsna Howard, uh, who played from 50, 55, 56, maybe 56, to uh, maybe 60, 68, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in his entire career, he has stolen eight bases. Who was the guy that uh, Satchel Page was talking about that was so fast that uh, I think he said he could turn the lights off and he'd be in bed before it got dark? Yeah, that was James Coupon the Bale. Oh, that's who it is? Yeah, yeah. And I, I interviewed Coupon the Bale. Uh, I was down there and I said, hey, how did that story came, come about? And he told, he told me there was a hotel that uh, he was in and Satchel was, you know, Satchel was his roommate, but he wasn't there. And so he said, uh, when he turned the light off, he noticed there was a delay. And then the light went off. Mm. So... When Stafford came back, he betted him so much money that he could turn the light off into the bed before the room got dark. And of course, Stafford wanted to see that, not knowing there was a delay. And of course, he turned the lights off, got the bed, and then the room went dark. And that's how the story became a, a, a legend. <laughs> but uh, true story, and I heard it from James Kupapa Dale. I didn't read this. I actually heard it from him. Uh, I remember uh, his wife, Clara Bale. I was down interviewing Kupapa Bill uh, one day, and uh, and when I was talking to Ku, I was asking questions, and she she looks at me and she says, "Why don't you ever interview any of the wives?" I said, "Wow, never thought about that." But then I started thinking about it because whenever I talked to the wives, they would have different stories than the ball players themselves, or different uh, different twists on the same story, right? Mm-hmm. So from there. Uh, I took her up on that. And so if you look at my legal uh, history, a photographic history, you will see a 
number of wives in the book and their pictures, and that came all up uh, from the interaction of, and conversation with Jane Cook about the Bill's wife. So she was a motivation for that, and it really changed uh, my book from looking like other books. The other thing that uh, a lot of these ballplayers, people don't realize, they were married over 50 years. And so these, these wives were with them through their entire baseball career and afterwards. And so, uh, yeah, you, you needed to interview both the husband and the wife to get the full story. Yeah. So your three other books you wrote about Wilbur, Bullet, Rogan? Yeah, that's one of them. That's right. And he was the, what What did he have to do with the Kansas City Monarchs? He was a player or the owner? Or? Yeah, no, Wilbur, Bullet, Rogan. I consider Bullet, Rogan to be the greatest all-around baseball player that ever lived. And if, you know, if I'm talking to someone who, you know, follows the major leagues quite naturally, when you say all-around baseball players, I'm talking about someone who could hit pitch, of course, they would think about Big Rick. Yeah. Uh, I would put Billy Rogan up against a big Rick any day of the week. Uh, Billy Rogan was a better pitcher, pitched longer. Uh, now, he didn't hit 700 major league home runs, but I've been able to find over 400 home runs he hit. And many times he would hit a home run pitcher shutout back in week in his own baseball game. And uh, in addition, he was a 10-second man. He could run that 100-yard dash. Under 10 seconds now, somebody out there knows that they really couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. So and uh, oh, I was just going to say your 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 next book was about John Buck O'Neill. Yes, um, the other was called John Buck O'Neill, the Rookie, the Man, the Legacy, and that's about Buck O'Neill's first year with the Kansas City Monarchs. Uh, that book was born out of the fact that uh, back in the 80s. I wanted to interview Buck about every year he had played for the Monarchs. So we're going to start with the 1938 season. So I go by his house, and we interviewed for four hours, just on one year, right? It was so, it was so, it was so exhausting, because uh, whenever he would ask a question, I would kind of, um, you know, um, go deeper. So he said, we, we, we went to Houston, and we stayed at a hotel. I would ask him, what, what was the hotel? Uh, what was the name of the hotel? Where was the hotel located? Was it big? You know, did it have more than one story or was it two story? Or, you know, I would ask questions like that. Mm-hmm. So it took about four hours and it was it exhausted me so much that I never did 1939, 40, I just did 1938 and I had it on tape, cassette mm-hmm. uh, tape. So I decided to release this book based on that interview and mix it in with stories about his other teammates that he had told me, and pictures, and uh, and basically go from city to city that year. So you can actually follow a real Negro League season through uh, John Buckleheel, the looking for the legacy. So another thing I asked you about earlier, you've been married for 36 years, and you have three children, and they're all college graduates. Right, right. Matter of fact, my son... My youngest son uh, just turned in his uh, paper the other day uh, for his master's thesis, and uh, he's a history major, and he's graduating with his master's from KU. So hopefully he'll be uh, doing some of the stuff I'm doing, or you know, or something similar uh, in the future. But yeah, uh, they all went to HBCUs, which uh, you know, for people who don't know that HBCU is that's a historically black college. 
uh, at university. So uh, my my uh, son graduated from Langston in uh, Oklahoma, and my uh, my daughter graduated from uh, Howard University in Washington D.C. And then, of course, my younger son graduated from Fisk, and he's getting ready to graduate with his master's from KU. So quite proud of them, and uh, you know we try to keep the legacy uh, going. Uh, there's there's a lot of information and. Um, and we want to make sure that we're educated and uh, we can present this information uh, to future generations. Do you have any grandkids yet? Yeah, we have a granddaughter. We have a granddaughter, and uh, uh, she, she she was born by actually just celebrated her her one her first birthday. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. So hopefully she'll follow in the line of uh, history as well. And and you know I come from a very really historic family. I don't know you. I don't talk about that as often, but uh, uh, on my mother's side, this would be my great-great-uncle. He was the first black United States senator from Mississippi. Hmm. And his, his name was Senator Blanche K. Bruce, uh, actually the first black college graduated from Kansas University, was also my cousin. So we have a great legacy in education, and uh, I'm trying to keep it going in my generation, and hopefully they'll keep it going in theirs. So that's one thing we do have in common. I only have one grandchild, and he's going to turn one year on May the 10th. So, right. so we're missing out on that. Because I'm going to make him one. I, I was hoping to take him uh, to a game this year, like towards the end of the season, but don't know if that's going to happen or not. So you're still living in Kansas City, and I was talking to you the other day about living there. Tell us a little bit about Kansas City and why you continue to stay there. We talked about barbecue and all that stuff. Um, you know, Kansas City is a great city, uh, a great western city. And of course, you know, I'm uh, doing the, uh, actually conducting history and traveling, you know, you're specifically located. So you, you can get to, you know, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Iowa, I can get to South Dakota in three hours. So, oh, wow. Uh, yeah, you're centrally located. And uh, that helped me a great deal in, uh, in writing this book. And also, it helped teams like the Kansas City Mods because they could travel to all these places, too. So, um, and they were centrally located. And, um, you know, now we get out east, cities are a lot closer together. I, I probably get about 400 cities that I've been in the east or something. <laughs> yeah. There, there, there's a little bit of space in between these cities, but out west, but you can still get quite a few places uh, from Kansas City here. So uh, I, I like the city. It has great tradition. Um, you know, uh, many people, great people have come from here, and, and some of them great have died here. You know, Satchel Page is buried here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in Kansas City, they decorate his grave all the time. So, uh, Charlie Parker, the great jazz saxophone player, uh, he was from Kansas City, Kansas, my original hometown, and uh, he's buried here in Kansas City. So uh, Kansas City, you know, it's been a great place. Uh, and so, you know, I did live for a while in Colorado Springs, and uh, they had great family, but, you know, when it comes to heritage and uh, legacy, Kansas City is pretty tough to be. So if there's an Astro fan out there that wants to make the road trip, to watch the Astros play the Royals, they can uh, go compare the barbecue there to the barbecue here. Everybody here in Texas loves their barbecue. 
And that's what I've heard about Kansas City. So that's something they can do there. Go watch the Strohs play. Go watch Kansas City and go visit the uh, Negro League Baseball Museum, which is actually still closed right now. Is that pretty close to the stadium where that's something they could throw into their itinerary? Oh, yes. Yes, yes. Definitely close. You know, and Kansas City's not that spread out where you can't get around uh, fairly easy. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's definitely uh, doable. And many people do just that. They'll come down and one of the old traditional places that really is close to, actually, there's a couple of that are close to the Negro Region Museum, which would be Gates Barbecue or Arthur Bryant's Barbecue. And I'm sure you've got some listeners who probably came in or went to the, a football game or a baseball game and took in barbecue as well. And, uh, yeah. You can take, get, get your barbecue, barbecue to go and, and go sit by a fountain. We have as many fountains as uh, Paris friends right here in Kansas City. So if I was to go to watch the Astros play the Royals and I didn't rent a car, would I be okay with stuff to do there? Oh, absolutely. 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 I I know we went to Boston and, I mean, everything is right there where we were at. The only time we had to take a subway is when we went to Fenway Park. But that was a a really nice vacation because everywhere you went, you walked. And, and, you know, and of course, you, know, you, would, you wouldn't be able to walk all these places here uh, because we are stretched out just a little bit for a walker. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's, our city is so easy to get around. Uh, you know, uh, being a Midwestern city, our traffic is completely different than maybe some of the places that I've seen on the East Coast. Even when you get down to St. Louis, uh, and I go to St. Louis quite frequently, especially when I was on tour, because when you head that direction, you're going to pass the St. Louis and then you're going to drop up to who knows what place in Illinois, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, it's, the, the Midwest is different, uh, but it's easy. I'll just say that. It's easy. Yeah. <laughs> okay, did you have anything else you wanted to add? I know, um, you know, I'd just like to invite people to my website, the Negro League Baseball Live. And uh, I named it that because uh, for the past 40 years, that's what I've been doing, keeping the Negro League baseball alive. And uh, also, uh, you know, feel free to pick up one of my books. Uh, my books cover everything from biographies to team history to photographic histories. And just trying to tell this story. It's a wonderful story. Baseball is a wonderful game. And just hoping to get the next generation to love the game like the generation that I came from and before. And they can find you on Twitter at Negro League Man, right? Mr. Dixon, I appreciate you being on the episode today. And that's all we have, folks. Thanks for listening. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Astros Baseball. Make sure to subscribe so that way you will be alerted when there is a new episode. Follow Rob on Twitter at Rob Fontenot. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.